They just feel like the moment for a story that basically relies on a girl's emotional intelligence to save the world (laughs) feels very exciting to me. And I think, you know, these kind of ideas around masculine and feminine, not in a gendered sense, but in a kind of archetypal and existential sense, we're witnessing the battle between those things occurring right now, culturally. And I think the story has everything to do with that. You're listening to the MILF Podcast. This is the show where we talk about motherhood and sexuality with amazing women with fascinating stories to share on the joys of being a MILF. Now here's your host, the milfiest MILF I know, Jennifer Tracy. Hey guys, welcome back to the show. This is MILF Podcast, the show where we talk about motherhood, entrepreneurship, sexuality, and everything in between. I'm Jennifer Tracy, your host, coming to you this last week of May 2019. WTF? I don't know. It's just amazing. And yet my nine-year-old feels like summer break, which is three weeks away, is agonizingly far away. And to me, it'll just be here in the blink of an eye. So today, uh, I want to. it's the last day for me to announce the give for the month, which is Save the Children. You can go to their website and donate to them directly, or you can write an iTunes review for MILF Podcast, and I will donate $25 per iTunes review. So there's that. Uh, we have our first live event coming up in Los Angeles, July 24th at 8 p.m. That's a Wednesday at Dynasty Typewriter. Tickets are on sale now. You can go to dynastytypewriter.com. It's $20 if you pre-buy them. It's $25 at the door. But if you really want to come, I would not wait. I'm expecting a full house. <laughs> so it's going to be a really fun show. I'm going to have four MILFs who have been previous guests on the show. Uh, and we're going to talk about sex after kids and just sex in general. And there might be some pole dancing involved in the show and other things. So uh, I really hope you guys can make it. That's going to be such a fun night. And what else can I tell you? Oh, my writing course starts June 17th. Um, this is the first uh, one of its kind that I've released. It's a six-week writing course that takes you from your story idea to a fleshed-out outline in six weeks. And um, I've really been enjoying working with my students and the free classes I've offered. So sign up for that at jennifertracy.com. Today's guest is Emily Ziff Griffin. Emily came to me through our mutual friend, Robin, who's also an amazing author, who now lives in Baton Rouge, but I met her when she was living here in L.A. Emily, I, I had no idea. I just didn't know her. I took, the, I took the referral from Robin. And I'm so glad that I did because what a treasure. What an absolute treasure this woman is. I didn't even know anything about her. I went to her house to interview her and I found out that she was a very accomplished film producer. Then when she decided that wasn't right for her anymore, she decided to write. And she really made it a priority in her life. And her husband supported that and supported her in doing that. And she wrote this beautiful book called Light Years. And I've had the pleasure of reading it since the interview. And it's absolutely gorgeous. I highly recommend it for any age. It's a YA, but it's, it's I mean, I loved it. <laughs> so, but I, I also love YA novels in general, many of them. So that's not to say, but, you know, it's written from the perspective of a young adult. It's phenomenal. I really love it. 
that will be there will be a link to that in the show notes of where you can um, buy that on Amazon, as well as Emily's links and things. And it was just a delightful conversation. I really love talking to her about all things artistry and motherhood and marriage and just being a working woman in this time. I really hope you enjoy my conversation with Emily Ziff Griffin. Hi, Emily. Hi. Oh my God. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. This is such a treat. This is really exciting. And having me in your beautiful home. I love this neighborhood, by the way. It's an interesting neighborhood. It's, um, I mean, I came from New York, so this mm. is like, I might as well be dead living here because it's so sedate. It's very suburban. It's very suburban. Um, but it's very beautiful. Everybody takes very good care of their uh, plants and flowers. So <laughs> I thought you were going to say children, but <laughs> no, I don't know. <laughs> there aren't actually there aren't as many children as you might think. There are a lot of older people. I think this neighborhood, yeah, I can, see you know, that. kind of goes back a long way, and it hasn't been sort of hipster gentrified yeah. yet. And so, which is cool. Like you can tell, it's just mm-hmm. authentic. And- I like that. Except that there's nowhere to get good coffee, so there's sort of you know pluses and minuses. I know. And as I was walking upstairs to get into your office, I saw a jar full of coins and I could only guess that that was a swear jar. But then I thought, okay. It actually was an attempt to trap leprechauns on St. Patrick's Day. My children have been for the last few years intent upon trapping leprechauns. So this year they um, put scotch tape on a bunch of coins and put them all on the stairs, hoping to stick the leprechaun's feet to the coin. That but it is work. incredible. I know. It's very cute. Well, they'll have to try again next year. Well, they will. They yeah. will. They'll come up with something, you know. Okay. So you're from New York originally. Yes. Grew yes. up, born and raised. Born and raised, New York City. And then yeah. where did you go from there? Like 18 hits, boom, where do you fly? I go to Providence, Rhode Island, okay. to Brown University, Oh, which I hated initially and went through like several months of like, I don't really need to go to college. Okay. Like I'm going to be a photographer and I just don't even need any of this. And which was really just that I was used to being kind of a big fish in my pond. And now I was with 5,000 other people who were really accomplished fishes. And Mm -hmm. it was really like, I think destabilizing. Yeah. So I left after my first year and I went to art school in Boston. Where in Boston? I went to BU. Oh, I went to the museum school. Oh, nice. Yeah. Just for a year. I I intended to transfer forever. And then the thing about art school is that, well, at least for me, it was very, it felt very narrow. It felt like you're talking about art, you're looking at art, you're with people making art, and there aren't a lot of external influences. Mm. And I think I didn't know what I wanted to say as an artist, as a creative person. I think I still was in a lot of fear around being creative and I didn't have my voice yet. What do you think the fears were? Just because, I mean, I'm so familiar with that, having been coming out here to be an actress and like finding my way to being a writer now and working with writers. But I just want, yeah, if you can. I think the fears were like both being seen and the vulnerability of like people really knowing me. And then that leads to the subsequent fear of failure, you know, of just like, I'm not actually talented or good enough or worthy of anything. And once I fully reveal the truth of who I am, that might be the result. And then what? Then then I have to like be what? Like a 
you know, a bank teller or, you know, <laughs> I didn't know like sort of what the alternative was. Yeah. But I ended up going back to Brown after that, that year. And then I discovered film, which I hadn't really considered as a path and, and particularly film theory, like really looking at how putting two images next to each other creates meaning. And that was thrilling. That was like kind of the first, I feel like, or maybe not the first, but definitely a big aha. Yeah. And I decided I wanted to work in in film and visual storytelling. But again, as like, I was afraid to say, I want to be a director or a writer even. I said, I want to be a producer because that felt like the very safe sort of like background version of being creative. Um, And so that's what I did. And I pursued that and moved back to New York after I graduated and, and then started working in the movie business. So you went straight from college and started producing films, or you started producing them in film school. I did but, produce you know. them in college yeah. to some extent, yeah. um, although the, the program there was very experimental. It was not Hollywood filmmaking at all. And I moved back to New York like with my Ivy League degree in art semiotics, thinking like, oh, great, I'm going to have no problem just like waltzing into the film industry and getting a great job. And of course... Uh, I didn't know anyone and I didn't really know how the business operated and I was at a real loss. It took me several months to find a job and I spent the first summer like doing all kinds of temp work and like odd jobs. And I ended up answering phones at a hedge fund and the president of the hedge fund had a cousin who was a movie producer and that's how I got my first job. (laughs) I love it. And I always tell that story to students because I worked my butt off at the hedge fund. Like I was, you know, I was like a diligent phone answerer and I organized their like office supply closet, you know, and I, I like cared. And so this guy took an interest in me and, um, and help me get a job. And so I worked as a producer's assistant. And then from there, I worked as a talent manager's assistant. And that was very challenging. Uh, It was a very challenging work environment. Um, She was very difficult, but she was brilliant. And she taught me a lot. And she also managed the actor, Philip Seymour Hoffman. And so I met him through her and I went to work with him. And I started as his assistant. And then we started a production company together and we worked together for 12 years. Wow. Until he died. I did not know that. Mm, Yeah. Wow. Okay. So my gosh, so you did a lot of, because he worked incessantly until he died. He worked incessantly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And we, you know, we had a company that was designed to make, our mission when we started was to make films that he would not act in. It was to give him sort of another path of, for for his creativity. And he loved working with writers and, um, and he wanted to direct. Um, and then we made three films, all of which he acted in, the first of which was Capote. Yeah. And then a film that he directed, Jack Goes Boating, and then a film uh, toward the very end, which, um, which I am a producer on and was there for, but I feel was, it was not really, it wasn't something we developed, but um yeah. So it was a, it was a long, uh, and there were, you know, many projects, many, many projects, uh, over the course of that time that we developed and, you know, just never managed to make, and we did develop a lot of television. Um, yeah. so it was, it was my extended graduate school. Yeah. I, I was going to say that's where you probably learned how to do everything producing uh, as a yeah. producer. And as an artist, I think yeah. I learned everything about, uh, how to approach the life of an artist or the, or I shouldn't say the life, but like the, uh, how to approach artistic, uh, endeavors. 
Wow. So 12 years. And then Philip died. Yes. And that's a huge loss. How it did was you? a huge loss. I mean, were you married yet at that yes, point? Yes, I was married. I had my first daughter. I actually had my daughter, I would say, right when he relapsed, when he mm. started drinking. Mm. Um, he was doing Death of a Salesman. I didn't know that at the time, mm. but, mm. you know, he was doing Death of a Salesman on Broadway, and she was born in January. Um, I think I found out a couple months later that he had started drinking. And mm. yeah, so it, it, you know, and, and, and then that was 2012 that my daughter was born and he died two years later. And it was really maybe a year after that, that I sort of started to realize that, uh, th that things might not turn out okay for him. Mm -hmm. You know, I started to really accept that, um, it just, you know, I, I didn't know what was going to happen. Mm -hmm. And so I started, I started to like, think about what was next, even before that, you know, I had to. Yeah. Um, and I think that had he not died and had he not, even if he had not sort of taken this turn in this other direction, you know, I think our, our time together would have had to change anyway. It was, it was a long time. And as much as I gained from it and learned from it, I also, it was quite stifling in a way because it allowed me to hide in mm. a sense, you know, it allowed me to do the same thing that I did in college and that I did by choosing the path of producing, which was to deny my own creative self yeah, in service of his. Yeah. And I started to realize that. And I think once you start to realize that it's just sort of a matter of time before yeah your need and your ambition overshadows your fear. Yeah. Your need to create. And so I decided to write a book, which was <laughs> in retrospect was probably the <laughs> least intelligent way to <laughs> learn to start writing. Um, I always have to remember, like I did do some writing classes. I did some screenwriting classes with a wonderful teacher named, named Francine Volpe for a while, but I, I didn't, have any formal writing training or, you know, I had a story that I had always wanted to tell and that's that, which is about another loss, which is my father dying when I was a teenager. Mm. So yeah, I decided to write a young adult novel loosely inspired by that. And I had started that before he died. And then when he died, it kind of shifted. It just, it just opened up the world in a way, because mm. even though by that point we had we had dis dissolved our company and we had made an agreement about all the various projects and how we were and weren't going to work together going forward. And so, you know, it was kind of, we were kind of done in, in mm -hmm. a way, but you know, we still had projects together and I still felt very tethered to New York. Yeah. And then when he died, it was kind of like, okay, like, I don't, like, I don't know what anything, like I was just in this very like otherworldly kind of liminal state of mm -hmm. uncertainty, which ultimately was really empowering and great. But at the time, like, I just, you know, I didn't know what to do. Yeah. And that kind of like walk through the wilderness was really great. Yeah. And that year was a, an insane year. I mean, like he I had a miscarriage in January. He died in February. I got pregnant with my son in March. My husband turned 50 in April. I had been doing this very long yoga teacher training, which I did only because I was like, I need a spiritual like conduit of some kind yeah. while all of this is happening. So I finished that in May. 
This is all in New York? This is all in New York. And then in June, we, we went to a wedding. My husband and I came out to Sonoma for a wedding. And we started talking about moving out here. And it was the first time where I think he opened up to the possibility of that. And, and for me, too, because I had always been like, well, no, Phil's in New York. I have to live in New York. I yeah. can't live in L.A. So we started talking about that in June. Nothing happened in July. It was weird. And then <laughs> in August, we came out here for a week. And on the way home, I bought one-way plane tickets for October 1st. Wow. And, and then in September, my husband's mother came down with this rare thing called Guillain-Barre syndrome, which basically left her in the ICU and paralyzed from head to toe except for one eyelid. Oh my God. She made a full recovery, but she spent 40 days in the ICU, like with a family member, 24 hours a day oh. with her. It was so insane. So that happened in September. And then we moved out here in, in October. And then my, hus my husband got a job in November. We came out with no jobs. We had nothing. We had no place to live, no job, no school for my daughter. Like I was seven months pregnant. Oh my gosh. Wow. And then he got a job in November and December 1st, my son was born. And so... I always just, I mean, like that year was insane. It was such a trial by fire and sort of like every way possible, like incredible highs, incredible lows, um, just the full spectrum of human experience in a way. And, uh, and all the, the whole time I was like trying to write this book. I was going to say, so where was the book in this? Yeah, like, I was trying to write the book and I was, you know, I was probably... Uh, a third of the way through it, you know, by the end of the year. And I remember like lamenting to a therapist I had in New York about how like, I'm just not getting to the book. And the book, the book really felt like everything rested and ride and rode on this book. Like, like my whole future was writing on this book because I really didn't want to produce anymore. I didn't feel that I had been successful as a producer actually. And so, and I, and I, believe that that's because I'm not supposed to be doing it. Mm -hmm. um, and even now I'm still doing it in a way that I know I'm not supposed to be. Mm. And so it's only that, that to me is just a matter of time, but I knew that even then. And so like, I have to do this because this is my ticket out of this life that I know is not. Mm. So I felt a lot of pressure and then also financial pressure because I had no income. My husband got this job, which was a great job for him. It's turned out to be sort of his dream job, but it's a nonprofit. Like it's not like, you know, and we we're having a second child, you know, so there was, there was all this pressure. And I remember complaining about the, like worrying about this with this therapist. And she was just like, look, you can only do like, you have to trust the right timing of things. And you have to trust that there will be a moment for you to write this book. It is not this moment. You've moved your family across the country. You are giving birth to another human. You're doing all these, <laughs> your mother-in-law almost died. Like, yeah you have to allow for these other things and you have to, you have to trust that mm. that's okay. Mm. Very hard for me mm. to do. But my son was born and then six weeks later, I got a babysitter come four days a week and then we had a little bit of money saved and it was basically like, okay, we're investing this money in this book. Like yeah. that's what we're doing. Yeah. And I had a first draft at the end of March. Wow, that's awesome. Um, and it was not very good. And I was working with these women who were like book packagers, who were kind of like producers for books. And they had helped me kind of shape the story. And they had, an, they had a professional editor that they hired to like edit the books that they were doing. And she was amazing. And she gave me like this 10 page um, 
document of notes that were like just devastating initially. And then (laughs) as my husband pointed out, he was like, she's teaching you how to write the book. And I was like, oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so, you know, I worked and I worked and I worked and I revised and I revised again and I gave it to someone to read and I took notes from them and I wrote another draft and another draft and another draft and eventually um, sold the book and finished the book and it came out a year and a half ago. Oh my God. That's what's the name of the book? The book is called Light Years. Oh my God. And yeah. So, and it's, and I'm so proud of it. Like it's, it's everything I wanted it to be. And, you know, when I started it, it was like, if I finish this, I win. Yes. Yeah. Um, And I still feel that. And then it was like, okay, if I publish it, I win. And then it was like, if I get some good reviews, I win. And, you know, so like the bar kept, kept rising. Um, I learned how to write by doing that and by all the people, you know, through all the people that were charitable enough to give me feedback. Yeah. Everyone thinks writing is such a solitary process, which it is, but then ultimately I think it can be, uh, you know, if you open up uh, the door to collaboration, to input, um, like that's how I had to approach it. Absolutely. Well, and at a certain point you can't see the story just by yourself with the same, with the same set of eyes and heart that is writing it. I mean, you know. That's right. So that is magnificent. So then... You sold that, published it, it's out in the world and on the shelves, and um, that's exciting. Was there, was there a next step for you after that within the world of, of writing of, of YA? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm turning it into a TV show, Amazing. which is very cool. Amazing. Deeply gratifying because, um, you know, it's allowing me to deepen and expand the story. And you know, that's the funny thing about publishing a book is that then it sort of exists in what feels like this very final form. Mm. And so now I'm getting to reimagine certain things and change things and deepen things. And, and really like, it's like this sort of spiral of discovery around what the story really is. Mm. It hasn't inherently changed. Like the big picture of what the story is, is still there. And both on a thematic level and a narrative level, but it's just, um, deeper and deeper and richer and richer and more and more layered. Mm. And that is just so cool. <laughs> oh, how exciting and how thrilling to be able to, you know, dive into that story. And I, I want to ask you and kind of back up for a second. So this is the story of a fictionalized story of your father's death when you were a teenager. Mm-hmm. So the character is going through that. Yeah. So my dad died of AIDS um, when I, the summer before I started high school. Mm. And he was a gay man. He was sick for five years before that. It was very, uh, it was very traumatic and, and challenging, um, needless to say. And so I always wanted to tell some version of that story. It took me a long time to kind of figure out. And actually, I think what I went through with Phil's death really informed how I told the story of my Mm -hmm. father's death. Um, in the sense that the way that I view, so the main character of the book is, uh, her name is Louisa. And the way that I sort of view her journey in the story, she, she's a very interesting girl. Um, she has a form of synesthesia, which is a real neurological condition, um, 
wherein some people's senses actually overlap and sort of get muddled. So like Kanye West actually has synesthesia. There are a lot of famous artists over time. You know, Van Gogh is said to have had it, Dostoevsky, like there are many notable people. And so for a lot of people, they will literally, when they hear a certain musical note, it will have a color. Interesting. That they will see when they hear that sound. And there are a lot of different ways it manifests. For my character, it it manifests through her senses, uh, through her emotions. Mm. I'm sort of conceived of this version of synesthesia wherein when her emotional state is particularly heightened, uh, her senses go into this sort of chaotic disarray. And she becomes kind of bombarded with these like sensory misfires. Mm. It's very debilitating for her. And what it means is that at the beginning of the story, she has learned really to control her feelings completely and totally so that she can function. Mm. And she has a mother who's very scientifically oriented and very rational and, and really believes that she needs to control this, that this is like vital to her success and mm. her future. And she's internalized that as well. And that's how she kind of, that's kind of how she is. And what happens in the story is a, a virus appears and starts killing people all over the world, this sort of, you know, insane pandemic. And her father gets sick and she finds herself on this cross country journey with her older brother, her brother's best friend, who's also her love interest. And then this girl, this kind of mysterious, cool, older girl. And she's sort of in pursuit of a way to save her father. And then, you know, she ultimately discovers that there's more to this disease than anybody actually knows and that there are certain ways in which she is particularly able to discern that and to sort of uncover the truth behind it. And that, of course, all has to do with this condition and with her emotional self. And I don't want to give away all the things that happened, but the the real sort of arc of her narrative is, you know, and then there's sort of this idea that... She's somewhat of a messianic figure. She's somewhat of a Joan of Arc kind of figure. And, you know, her arc really has to do with her learning to synthesize these two parts of herself. This really, She's a brilliant intellect. She's a computer coder. That's another element of the story. Very kind of brilliant left brain thinker. Um, but then there's this other piece that she's denied for a long time that then comes into play just as significantly. Um, and that's my, that was my journey too, you know, mm -hmm. and it was my journey in writing the book and in kind of opening up to a certain way of seeing existence and life and the world and sort of a sort of spiritual um, awakening of sorts where I, I, I understand that there's more to all of it than we tend to think day to day as we're just, you know, worrying about our school lunch and our, you yeah. know, car payment or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And that really is, you know, how she sort of conceit of it is that like our emotional selves are actually this, they are a form of superpower. And we are in a culture where particularly for girls and women, that's long been, that's shamed long been denied. And, yeah, denied yeah. and shamed. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, amazingly, since writing this, I, you know, the world has risen up to sort of meet some of these ideas in such a great way, which is particularly why the TV show excites me, because I just feel like the moment for a story that basically relies on a girl's emotional intelligence to save the world <laughs> feels very exciting yes. um, to me. And, and I think, you know, 
these kind of ideas around masculine and feminine, not in a gendered sense, but in a kind of archetypal and existential sense, um, we're, we're witnessing the, the battle um, between those things occurring right now, culturally. And I think the story has everything to do with that. Yeah. So I find that very exciting. Oh my God. I'm going to go home and order it right now. Oh, no, I'll give you, I've so got a amazing. pile of them over there. I'll give you Really? Will you <laughs> sign it? Oh my God. It's so, it's such a beautiful story. Now, so, I mean, so many things. Congratulations. I know how hard it is to write a book. I've written one and I'm writing my second one. And I watched Robin, our shared friend, go through her journey. She's also an amazing writer. The story that you just so brilliantly laid out, I mean, beautifully, uh, how long did it take you from when you started writing the book, when you really started writing? And, and by the way, I also want to just say, and this is so important, the fact that you'd had that really difficult year up until when you're, you moved out here and then your son was born and then you and your husband, probably together, I'm assuming you didn't say that, but I'm inferring that, mm -hmm. made the decision together of like, no, we're going to take this money and invest it in my, my work, my creative writing. Like that is so awesome. And that is something that I didn't grow up with. And I didn't have early in my marriage in a way that, I mean, A, I wasn't asking for it. I'm not blaming my ex-husband. Yeah. We're now amicably, amicably divorced and he's lovely and we're friends. And, but I didn't, I didn't have the moxie to say, I didn't even know that I wanted to write a book then. So that's part of it. But I love that commitment of like, oh no, I'm, this is the investment I'm making. Not only because you had a fire under your ass financially, but it was just like, well, it's a hundred percent. I give him a hundred percent of the credit for framing it that way, because all I thought was like, oh my God, we're running out of money. We're going to run out of money. We're going to run out of money. Like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And his thing was like, it's okay. It's just money and you need to do this. So we're going to do it. Like, which was not comfortable for me at all. And was de it was definitely not a case of me being like, I believe in myself. Like, let's invest this money in me. It was more like, I need to write this book. And I don't know. And him being like, it's cool. It's fine. I mean, that is, oh, that's which is pretty awesome. awesome. That's, uh, that's very, real very partnership awesome. really to support yeah. you and the family and the children. And I mean, it is hard to balance this, all this stuff. It's so hard. Like, I don't, yeah. that's why I started this podcast was like to interview him. I'm like, how the F do you, do it? How do, you do, do, do it? it? how do you do it? How do you do it? And then the fact is it's all different in it, but to have that support of each other, and I'm sure you support him in the same way. That's really magic sauce. That's great. It is good. I mean, it's part of why we came out here too, because like, we were in New York and he was doing commercial real estate and he was really unfulfilled. And yeah. it was so not, he's such a, he's such a, a brilliant visionary thinker. And it was just like not using even like half of yeah. his potential. Yeah. Right. And even though we came out here with like no idea what he was going to do, it gave us the ability to, to, to just like, upend the script completely and find something else, which he then magically managed to do in a way that is like the best use of his skill set and his interests and all of that. So yeah, I think you have to be willing. I think that's been a really great lesson for us. And part of, I remember him saying to me when we first started talking about moving out here, he was like, the fact that my initial, that I have resistance means we have to do it mm. because I don't ever want to be in a life where change feels impossible. It kind of gave us that thing of like, oh, we can always move. We can always change. We can always do things that, you know, we didn't see coming. And I think we've been 
we're very similar. I mean, we just decided to move our kids out of their private school and put them in a charter school, which brings up all kinds of stressful, like, and like status things and like all kinds of things. For us, it was like, no, this is like, we can make these decisions and we can like make these choices because they're the best thing for us in the moment. And they may work and they may not work, yeah. but we're not going to be locked in by fear. Yeah. And you can always change your mind. A hundred percent. Yeah. That's the beauty. We we have the liberty here, at least in this country, to change our minds, yeah. you know? Yes. And 100%. Yeah. I mean, and just to know that, like, we have no idea what's coming. It's like, that's a thing. I think people make so many decisions out of a false perception of permanence. And, like, if there's anything I've learned and like, and I think only in the last couple of years have like really started to embrace the fact that even the good things, like the good thing, like the bad things are not going to last forever. Neither are the good things. So like, just don't get so caught up in, in either, you know, in any of the swings of the pendulum. Like Mm. it's just, Mm. it's, it's, uh, do you feel like your yoga practice and learning that helped you with this piece and kind of put it in your body? Yeah. I, and I, that's one thing that I have lost, uh, (laughs) in Los Angeles (laughs) and having the second child is my yoga practice, which is a heartbreaker in a way. Um, but it's also okay. I think it's like that too. It's like, that I'll, I'll come back to that at some point. And you know, it's like, it's fine. I don't, I don't feel this thing of like, oh my God, yeah. oh God. When you still have all of that in you. So when you go back to the mat, it'll be there. I think that yoga was the way into a spiritual life for me because I always have struggled with having a spiritual life, but I've always wanted one. I mean, I remember as a child, my closest friend who lived down the street when I was very young, her father was an Episcopal priest. And they would go to church every Sunday to his church. And I would like secretly angle to get invited over for a sleepover on Saturday night so that I could go with them to church. And we would spend the entire time like, you know, doodling in church brochures. Nobody was, I wasn't listening. I wasn't, you know, enraptured by the scripture or anything, but I, I really, I did always have I had a desire for faith, even though I didn't have it. Like mm-hmm. I always wanted to be a believer or wanted to be, I, I was deeply upset that my Jewish father did not insist that I go to Hebrew school. Like I was like, come on guys, like, please put, like force this on me. <laughs> um, I want it. But I also struggled with it because I also came from a very intellectually rigorous school and an upbringing where, you know, people who believed in God were idiots kind of thing. And so I had a lot of that too, to sort of overcome. And, and, and it was really yoga. And my husband was very deep to yoga when I met him. That's how you guys met in yoga? No, it's a a good story. Okay. No, we did, but we didn't meet in yoga, but, um, but he brought me to yoga for the first time. And it was Jiva Mukti, which is a studio in New York that is very like, high on teaching, uh, on spiritual teaching, on Dharma teaching. Like it's not. Kundalini? No, it's no. not Kundalini. Okay. Um, but it's, I mean, the class begins with 15 minute Dharma talk and wow. that talk is then woven through the entire 90 minute practice. And it's, it's, it's not just a, a workout class, yeah. you know? Yeah. 
And I remember just thinking like, this is the whole thing because it had, there was this physical way in. And so it was like, oh, I get that. Like I had been a dancer. And so I was like, right. Okay. So if I'm balancing on one foot with, you know, an arm and a leg in the air, and you're talking to me about gratitude, or you're talking to me about equanimity or patience or any number of things, like I get that and I can connect the dots. And I found that so satisfying. Mm. And so then that like kind of was the access point, I think, for then being able to just get into those ideas with or without the physical component. And so how did you guys meet? I want to hear the whole story. Go ahead and take a sip of water. It's a good story. Um, (laughs) So one of Phil's closest friends was uh, the designer, Cynthia Rowley. Okay. And I became friendly with her over the years. And another friend of mine, we had done a, a charity event for Phil's theater company. And one of the auction items at this event was a shot, like a private shopping party at Cynthia's store in the West Village. And my friend Elizabeth bought that at the auction and organized this shopping party. It was a December, no, it was like a November evening. She had invited me to go and I was like, really, I had broken up with someone like a f- couple of months before that was like, devast- like that devastated mm. me. Mm. And so I was still like, just in like that state of like, nothing's going to work out ever. And I'm going to be 30 and like, you know, all of that. <laughs> and, uh. And I was like, I have to go to this fucking shopping party and it's going to be all women like drinking champagne and eating cupcakes. And I'm going to like want to punch every like (laughs) sex in the city wannabe (laughs) fucking girl at this thing. But I went anyway. Cynthia was there and I was trying on this pair of purple leather gloves that had gold zippers on the wrist and they were so sexy and cool. And I was just like, these gloves are so dope. And she was like, I know, they're great. My friend just bought those for this woman that he's dating. And I was like, I want to date that guy. Like, who bought, he bought these for her? Like, I want to date him. And she was like, that's a great idea. And I was like, well, not if he's dating the glove girl. (laughs) And she was like, no, 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 that didn't work out. Like, that didn't work out. I don't think he's seeing anyone. And she like disappeared and ran upstairs to her office and came back five minutes later and she had printed out a photograph of him on the beach with a couple of kids. And I recognized one of them was Cynthia's daughter, but the other ones, I wasn't sure who they were. And I was like, I was like, okay, he's definitely a very handsome fellow. But I was like, are these his kids? Because like, you know, my list of like deal breakers was like somebody who has kids. Right. And she was like, no, 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 no. She was like, I think though he does have a son, but like, I think he's older, like he's grown up. And I was like, well, how old is he? Cause like also on my list was like anybody over 40, like, no. <laughs> and she was like, I think he's like 43. Like he's like in his early forties. And I was like, and then we're talking to him and she's like, oh, and well also like he doesn't drink. And I was like, like again, like all of these things, I was like, forget this. This is a terrible idea. But he was attractive enough. And I was kind of like, and, and I, you know, Cynthia, you don't really say no to Cynthia. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I was like, okay, fine. Like, tell him to, tell him to send me an email. So I went home and I Googled him. <laughs> and I found this article about him in the New York Times that was about um, his apartment that he had renovated. Very small little like 600 square foot studio apartment in Chelsea, but he had done this renovation and it was so beautiful. And like the way that he, he had 
gone to like six different architects to interview them with like piles of images of like, like drawings he had done of buildings in third grade, but then also like Andy Goldsworthy, like images, like all of these beautiful, like just this, it was very soulful. It was like a very soulful interview. And I remember like reading that and going like, oh my God, I'm totally going to marry this guy. Like this guy is the guy. And then I kept looking and realized that he had gone, I found him, I guess on Facebook or something. And I realized that we had gone to the same school, um, which is this like private school in Brooklyn Heights called St. Anne's. And I was like, that's wild, you know? And uh, we were different ages. He's, he's 14 years older than I am. And so we didn't know each other, but we had, we determined we had lived on the same street our whole lives and we had gone to the same school that is our whole lives. Crazy. Yeah. Oh my God, that's so romantic. It was very romantic. But then we met, we had our first meeting, we met for a coffee and it was like the most, it was like a business lunch. Like <laughs> it was so not, like there was no. <laughs> no chemistry? No chemistry or just, initially. Were you both just afraid, do you think? I was afraid. Yeah. I was very nervous. I was like, I really, like I had already, and and we had had this series of email interchanges that were amazing, that were just like funny and witty and like interesting. And like, I already was like so smitten with him. And then I think meeting him, I was very scared. Yeah. And again, uh, you know, in the same way that I was hiding and, uh, you know, I spent so much time hiding and I think he was a little bit like, I like you. I know that there's something to you, but like, I can't really get past. Like, I thought I was like cool and aloof and sexy. And he was just like, you're emotionally unavailable. It's not cool. Like, I'm too old for that. <laughs> yeah. Right. And because um, how old were you at the time? I was 29. 29. Okay. Yeah, I was 29. Which isn't that looking back, doesn't that seem so young now? Oh my God. Like I think of myself at 29. I mean, I got married at 30 and I was I was probably too young to get married in some ways, no, you know. I mean, I have friends who've been married or who've been like with the same guy since college and I'm like, "Are you fucking kidding?" Wow. Yeah. It's I applaud crazy. them. That's yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. Um so you had this kind of awkward so we had this first awkward date. Co- and then we like had a few awkward first dates or a few awkward dates and then basically decided to be friends because it just seemed like he just, he really was, I was kind of like, I'm ready to like totally like be your girlfriend. And he was kind of like, I don't, I don't think that's what this is. And I was like, fine. Yes, that's fine. Uh, <laughs> sure. We'll be friends. But then we started hanging out all the time and we mm-hmm. had all the same interests and he loved to like go see modern dance and he loved to go to the museum and he loved to run and I was training for the marathon and we ended up running the New York city marathon together. And, and we started writing a movie together and we just like started hanging out all the time. And then eventually, and then I started going to therapy. That was the other thing. I was like, okay, (laughs) (laughs) I think, I think it's time for me to go to therapy and figure out why. Cause that was kind of my thing was like, people who are unavailable to me in some way or another, because really I was unavailable to everybody as well. Yeah. And so that was also a big piece of it. It was like me actually doing the work that I had to do. That's awesome. Plug for therapy. Yeah. Love therapy. Yes. That's such a great love story. And so now how long have you been married? We've been married for not, uh, for it will be nine years this fall. 
Oh, yeah. Wow, congratulations. We've been together for 11. I mean, once we got together, then we got married the next year, basically. Yeah. yeah. And how old are the kids? Seven and four. Oh, my gosh. You got your hands full. Yeah. But that's so great. That's, that's fun, though, because they're more independent. They're starting. Like, I see yeah. the light at the end of the tunnel. And I have two good friends that just had a third baby. And I, I'm just like... <laughs> I could never, I could never do it. I got a dog instead, which I also thought was, you know, in the beginning, I was like, what? I kept complaining about it to my friend, Sarah. And she was like, nobody told you to get a dog. Nobody told you. Like, I don't want to hear it. Nobody told you. You're an idiot. She doesn't have a dog. No, yeah. she has two children. And she was like, you're a fucking idiot. I have two rescue dogs and they are the loves of my life oh. next to my son. And they are so, I mean, my son's an only How child. How old is your son? He's almost 10. Oh. He'll be 10 in July. And so for him to have pets is like really nice because yeah. he doesn't have any siblings. Yeah. He has a 25-year-old um, half-sister from his dad's first relationship, but she's 25. Like she, you I know, know. she's my doing her thing. My husband has a 34-year-old son. Yeah. Which so is it's, crazy. you know, they know each other, obviously, yeah. but it's not the same. Right. So, um, let me check the time. It always goes so fast. It's like your your story is so fascinating. I cannot wait to read your book. Oh, good. I'm so excited. Um, and when is the TV show coming out? Are you in pre-production or what stage we, are you in? We ju I just um, set it up with uh, MRC Studios, which I, we haven't announced that. So, hey, it's my announcement. No, but uh, yeah. So, I mean, it hasn't been sold to a network yet. I'm writing the pilot right now. Um but I have really great, it's a really great team of people. It's like the producer so of A good. Star is Born and the creator of The Affair. It's like a really awesome. Group oh my of God, people. it's going to be incredible. I, I can't wait excited. to tune in. I will binge watch it. I know. I hope that I, I'm just, I'm in such a rush and like everything takes so long. It took, like, we pitched it in October. And yesterday, all the deals finally got done. Oh, my God. And Congratulations. I'm like, thank you. That's but huge. I was like, that's six months yeah. of just deal making. And then now you're in this phase. But it always happens, and you know this from production, like, once you, day one of production, it's like a bullet train. It's like, and now we got to finish. Blah, 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 blah. We're losing light. Blah, blah, blah. We're over budget. Right, <laughs> right. Like, oh, my God. I can't I take know. a breath. <laughs> I know. Well, I'm just like, I'm so ready. I'm so ready. Yeah. I'm like... They're all like, I was like, I want to shoot this this fall. And everyone thinks I'm completely like psychotic. And I, I'm sure, I'm sure that that's the case. But I'm also like, watch me write the first five episodes in the next two months. Just watch it happen because yeah. I'm going to do that. And then you'll all be like, huh. Because I just, I feel, I just feel very determined about it. Mostly because um, I think it's such a story for this moment. And, yes. I, and I want it, I want it to in the world. be in the world. Yeah. I mean, it is as the book, but also to have it, like you said, there, with the television show, you can explore in deeper crevices of the story and the characters in yeah. a way that yeah, yes. in prose is different. Yeah. <gasps> I'm excited for you. Thank you. I'm so excited for Thank you. Thank you so much. And do you still have help with the kids so that you can still write? They are in school. That's so you use that time. That's your time to be yeah. like, like right now. Like right now. So you're giving me an hour of your creative time. Yeah. Which I'm so grateful for. Oh, I'm so, I love to, to talk about my work and meet other like smart, badass moms. It's mm. such an honor to be 
to be in this, in this orbit with you because yeah, I think as you said, it's like, we all, we're all trying to figure out how to do it. And so I've gleaned so much from the things that I've heard, like, you know, here and there. And especially now, like I've been, I, I, um, I got this dog. So I've been walking this dog a lot and I listened to masterclass. Have you? Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. And, and I like fully credit, I I did Shonda Rhimes masterclass and there's like a moment in that where she talks about how like the choice of actor often changes your conception of a character, right? Like you, they have quality as a, as a, as an actor that like somehow informs the character. And, and I got interested in this actress to play Louisa and one of her skill sets is singing. She's like an incredible singer. And that gave me the idea to actually have the way that Louisa manager, manages her condition be like through vocalization. Not, oh. she wouldn't call it singing, but just yeah. through vocalization, which is just fucking awesome. And I, it's like this, it's added this like incredible dimension to how I see this show. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I like fully give Shonda Ryan yeah. credit for that. Uh, if you're listening, Shonda, thank you. <laughs> and so, yeah, I just, I don't know. I'm constantly hungry for yeah. uh, for just like to be learning from yeah. other people who are doing the same kinds of things and how are they doing them and what do they have to yeah. share. And Me too, me too. gift and of I the love, digital age. Oh God, it really is. And it just, you know, I had a, a close friend call me today and she's like, I want to start a podcast. How do I do it? And I was like, she has a topic. She has an, she's interested in it and in people's stories about it. And I said, you get a recorder and you start recording. Right. <laughs> she's like, but, 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 but. I said, you get a recorder and you start recording and you ask questions. It's just right. it. I'm just interested in women's stories of who they are, how they became that, what the through line was like. And we always weave in different directions, but it just, and, and it's, yeah, it's, it's, and it always helps other women and other people yeah. and men. We have men, we have male listeners too, you yeah. know? So yeah. So cool. Anyway. Um, all right. So we've come to the time in the interview mm-hmm. where I ask you three questions. I ask every guest and oh, then we fun. do a lightning round. Yeah. So what do you think about Emily when you hear the word MILF? I developed a TV show with this producer many years ago and I feel like I remember him referring to me as a MILF at one point in this like, and then I remember like being kind of proud of that. Like Uh I remember thinking like, yeah, (laughs) I mean, in retrospect, it was like totally degrading and inappropriate, (laughs) but I don't know, I guess like, uh, I mean, I, I think of this sort of like traditional, uh, acronym meaning. And I, and I feel a sense of like, yeah, that's like, I kind of want to be like, I do want to be a mother that somebody would like to fuck because otherwise what's the alternative? Like, but I like your definition much better in a a way too. Thank you. What's something you've changed your mind about recently? My kid's school. Mm. And I think just that has to do with prioritizing certain things that, you know, we all claim to want to prioritize and then in our secret private lives don't. Mm. And so the idea of them being in a school with kids who come from different backgrounds, who don't look like them in a school that, that is actually not just saying that they embrace that, but is like actively day 
today, like talking about that and integrating it into the way that they teach and to what they teach like that, um, feels very important, very exciting. Mm. Um, and yeah, it kind of required this like very big leap from a lot of things that have given me comfort for my whole life. Like I went to private school and found it like really important to my existence and my survival. And I think just like letting go of some of those assumptions and those sorts of, um, the, the perception of those uh, safety nets, I think for my own kids has been yeah. like, it feels like really, it feels kind of like a big deal. Yeah. Um, yeah. Awesome. Awesome. How do you define success? Oh, I just read this great quote. Okay. So my daughter's really into gymnastics. She's like obsessed with gymnastics. And so we've gone to pretty much every single UCLA women's gymnastics meet this season, which if you have a young daughter, whether she's interested in gymnastics or not, or frankly, a young son, like, and you live in Los Angeles, please, please get tickets next season. It is incredible. These women are incredible. They are so just powerful. And it's, it's really like, it's, it's a special thing. Um, but the coach of this team, who's been the coach for like, 25 years or 30 years. She's retiring at the end of the season. And she just came out with a book, which of course I bought and I've been slowly, you know, quasi reading at bedtime. Anyway, she has a quote from John Gooden, um, the, uh, sorry, John, John Wooden, the um, UCLA basketball coach uh. and who was like her mentor. And the quote, ha I'm not going to, paraphrase it correctly, the thing that sticks out to me is that success is peace of mind. And he says something about like, in knowing that you did your best to be the best version of yourself that you could. Mm. But what really kind of um, sticks with me is this idea of success is peace of mind. Yeah. And for me, peace of mind does, it has to do with this idea of leaving it all in the field. Mm. And I think for many years of my earlier life, I didn't do that. I kind of did the bare minimum. And I, and I had a lot of success with things, quote unquote, success with things without a lot of effort, mm. but those things were never satisfying because they never felt like full expressions of my capability. Mm. That peace of mind of like, I couldn't have, I couldn't have tried harder or given it more and not in the sense of trying to force things or manipulate things or manage and control everything, but just in the sense of full expression. Yeah. And giving yourself. I mean, yes. that's to me when you describe your book, which I can't wait to go order on Amazon and then devour when it comes, is um, the vulnerability mm -hmm. that I can even just hear and having spent the last, you know, 56 minutes with you, I can feel that there's that vulnerability mm -hmm. born out of your life experience and the wisdom from that. And that's what Thank makes you. such a compelling story. That's what makes a page turner because we're with that person, that character going, oh, I felt that maybe not that exact set of experiences, yeah. but I know that feeling of that's being right. afraid or being, you know, that's right. and that's why it's so healing and exciting. And I just, yeah, I think yeah. you could even, you could also say like success is authenticity, right? It's mm. like being authentic. Then you, you don't have regret when you, that that's where the peace of mind comes in. You're not, you're not bogged down by regret or, yeah, or any kind of negative feeling because you've, been your you played full, full out sense. yeah full self yeah. yeah i love that okay lightning round okay ocean or desert ocean 
Favorite junk food? Cheetos. Oh, one of my faves. One of my faves. So good. Movies or Broadway show? Movies. Daytime sex or nighttime sex? Nighttime. Texting or talking? You know, texting. I have to say, I'm sorry. I'm one of those people now. Like, I just really enjoy texting. Oh, no, me too. <laughs> I, I, I'm talked out with between my son and then, right. you know. I also I, live in, like, I like, I'm a writer. So I actually yeah. like writing. Composing. Yeah. yeah, I'm the same way. <laughs> Cat person or dog person? As you have your sweet little angel cat I'm, next to I you. I think I'm be, I mean, I always never like, I've never liked dogs. And now I, ha and I got one and it was the same way with children. So I'm going to say, I'm going to say both. Yeah. Mm. I like that leap. You're leaping. You're leaping. You're not am. sure, but you're leaping. I love I it. I hated other people's babies and I love my children. And I mm. hate other people's dogs and I really love this dog. Mm. Have you ever worn a unitard? Shit. <laughs> I don't think so. I, my body is not really built for unitards. Even in dance? Well, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I guess in dance. I don't think so, though. No. I feel like that was not a go-to for me. No. It was more leotards or like sweats and I don't know. Did you do modern dance? Yeah. Or okay. Yeah. Not so you unitards. Could wear whatever. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Shower or bathtub? Depends on the day. I like a good bath. But I mean, I take a bath rarely, so, yeah. you know. Because it's a time thing. Yeah. Ice cream or chocolate? Ice cream. On a scale of one to 10, how good are you at ping pong? Four. <laughs> <laughs> Were you about to give yourself a six or a seven? Say six. And then I was like, that's not true. <laughs> that's definitely not true. <laughs> like four might be a stretch. I don't know. <laughs> What's your biggest pet peeve? Um, people who are not themselves. Mm. If you could push a button and have perfect skin for the rest of your life, but it would also give you incurable halitosis for the rest of your life, would you push it? No. <laughs> She's curling up her lip and twisting her nose. No. Superpower choice. Invisibility, ability to fly, or super strength? Fly. I hate airplanes. Oh, God. Yeah. I didn't used to, but I, I really do now. It's unfortunate because I want to travel. But Would you rather have a penis where your tailbone is? Or a third eye. Third eye. What was the name of your first pet? Buster. What was the name of the street you grew up on? I mean, there were a few. Uh, Willow Street. So your poor name is Buster Willow. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it is. <laughs> totally. It's <laughs> like gangster. Yes, I really enjoy that. Buster Willow. <laughs> Buster Willow. We could write a whole miniseries just about I Buster think, Willow. I think that has to happen. <laughs> It's very, it's very special. Emily, thank you so much. Thank this you so amazing. much. This was amazing. You're amazing. Ugh. I can't wait to read your book. Likewise. I mean, thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening, guys. I really hope you enjoyed my conversation with Emily. Join me again next week for episode 50, you guys. Let me just say that again. Join me next week for episode 50 of MILF Podcast, where... I've turned the tables and Jackie McDougal, the beautiful and lovely Jackie McDougal of 40 Thrive. If you haven't checked out that podcast, please do. Jackie interviews women over 40 about all things women over 40. She's just an exquisite human being and a wonderful podcaster and, and auteur of that genre. She actually teaches people how to do and launch podcasts. And so we decided for my 50th episode that she was going to interview me and that's what's going to be next week's episode. And then I interviewed her and that's going to be on her podcast the same day. What? 
I find this very exciting. Even a little bit titillating. All right, tune in next week, you guys. I love you so much. Keep going. You're doing great. You really are, I promise. Don't believe anybody else, especially that nasty gremlin-y voice in your head that tells you otherwise. You're doing fucking great.